0: Welcome to the Everyday Innovator podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in.
1: Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so you'll create products customers love. In this discussion, we are learning more about the power and use of jobs to be done with Bob Maesta. Bob is an innovator, entrepreneur, and the co-creator of the jobs to be done theory to investigate consumers' motivations and decision-making processes. He's also the co-founder of the Rewired Group, which helps companies repeatedly innovate and reliably predict success. On top of that, he's a research fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute. Bob has had amazing mentors and many accomplishments, and I'm sure you'll find this discussion very valuable. Remember, if you hear anything you want to go back to, we do take detailed notes for you, and also we'll offer you a one-page action guide at the slash 335. The action guide helps you put into action highlights of what you hear, and also the summary helps you go back to anything you want to hear again. Now let's talk with Bob. Bob, thank you so much for joining the podcast.
2: Chad, thanks for having me on. Excited to be here.
1: So I have heard your name in many circles for many years, and uh, really excited to be talking. The, the first time uh, I came across you earlier, but first time I got connected with you was actually from one of your employees there at the Rewired Group at the time, uh, Chris uh, Speaks. I might be pronouncing yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. He was Respect. one of
2: my co- he was my co founder here.
1: Awesome. So he he uh, joined us uh, many years ago, like our first year of the po- of the podcast, six years ago. Um, and tell me about some of your work. And I'm really excited to hear about how you got involved with jobs to be done and more about how we can use that tool as product managers. Um, how did that start for you?
2: The way I usually started is uh, I've been breaking things for 50 years. I'm 56, so I've been breaking things for a long time. I've been fixing things for 45 years to get myself out of trouble, but I've been building things for 35 years. And um, very uh, the other thing is, is that uh, I've uh, had... Th- Three close head brain injuries when I was before I was seven, and I can't read and I can't write, or I struggle very hard to do those things. And so, as I was building product, one of the things that I was hard was I would get all these marketing reports, and I could not understand. They, they would tell me about who the people were, but they wouldn't actually tell me about why people were doing what they were doing. And so, um, and I've I was lucky enough to have uh, I'll say four really uh, great mentors um, there. They're, they sit in my office. This is my office. They sit in my office. They they they're all they have all passed away, and so I feel like I have the obligation. But but uh, Dr. Deming, who's number number four up there, he would always tell me the fact is is like nothing is random. Everything is caused. We we need to understand why people buy what they buy. And so from that perspective, I started to actually understand the ca- the underlying causality behind. Um, what, what caused people to buy something or do something new um, from there? And uh, to be honest, it's it's one of those things where it was a, what I called a hack or a workaround. Uh, I'll say in the 90s when we were working, I worked with Rick Petey and some other people to help kind of make it into a method. And then I started to collaborate with Clay, Clay Christensen. Uh, he and I had a very interesting relationship for almost 27 years. We had four hours uh, a quarter for... 27 years with no agenda and mm-hmm. in 2010 he really kind of pushed to try to turn it into a theory um, which I didn't really understand what it meant because I'm just a practitioner and from there like uh, Clay uh, has made it famous uh, through his book competing against luck so it's, uh, it's a very it's a methodology that is based on that premise that people don't buy, buy products; they hire them to do a job in their life. And to understand the struggling moments that actually cause people to say today's the day they want to do something different.
1: Good. I'm curious who the two other mentors are.
2: Uh, Oh, the two others? So one is – so number one is Dr. Willie Moore. Dr. Willie Moore was my first uh, um, uh, supervisor at at Ford. She was a – she was the first African-American to graduate from the University of Michigan with a Ph.D. in particle physics. And at some point in time, I don't know if she, she felt like I was, she, was, she was being punished to give this dyslexic kid to her, but her and I hit it off famously, and she taught me all. She was like the ultimately the, the, the practitioner of Dr. Deming and Dr. Taguchi's work. Number two is Dr. Genichi Taguchi, who was um, uh, basically right after the uh, uh, World War II, basically helped rebuild the infrastructure for Japan. And he invented some methods around how to prototype and engineer uh, way efficiently and effectively. And uh, I went and learned those when I was, uh, uh, you know, 18 years old is when I met Dr. Toguchi. And then Clay Christensen number is number three. And Dr. Deming, I actually met when I was 18 and uh, became an intern for him and went to Japan and learned all the different methods. And so... Uh, my foundation is, is in, started in uh, uh, the quality realm and improving product, uh, current product, and then Ford had me be part of a team that actually uh, worked on um, redevelop- basically t- taking their development time from 72 months to 36 months. Mm-hmm. And so I learned all the methods and tools, so I was like the, the grunt on the front line just learning everything and, and, and spending all my time learning how to develop new products. Uh, I really
1: appreciate the background, uh, great mentors that you have had there. And, I'm quite jealous, especially the time with Clay Christensen. It's
2: it's it's very interesting as as I as I reflect on it. It's one of those things where the first thing, the, the thing that uh, I, I think of dyslexia as the greatest gift I have ever got, but I would never give it to my children, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? And it's one of those things where I have to learn through questions. And so when I met Dr. Deming. I asked him. He said, "52 questions in 20 minutes," and and for him, he basically turned to me and said, "Boy, you are a curious kid, aren't you?" And I said, "Well, I, this is the way I learn," and so that's where he actually asked me to to be his intern for the summer. It was very very interesting. So I think all of them love the way that I ask questions, and that I I'm um, I, I'm I'm genuinely trying to understand how things work. And
1: what a great background for us as product managers and innovators, having those experiences that you've had to cut development time in half something that we yeah. all feel pressure to do yeah. wanting to make products better the quality aspect yeah. and actually meeting problems that customers have
2: that's that's right and 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 you start to realize it's a, it's a, it's a very it's an onion that you have to spend this time like like i i feel like um when I was taught uh, as an engineer, we were given problem sets, but when you get to the real world, the, the, you don't see the problems, you have to frame the problems, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the aspect here is that how we actually end up defining them and how we actually see the bigger picture is really kind of, I think, fundamentally one of the differences that, that my mentors, would, all, all of them would attribute is the fact is that you need to actually see things um, in a very holistic way and not isolate out a problem. Because if you just focus on one problem, you end up causing another problem that's related, but, but unknown. And so seeing how things work is at the core of everything.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That, that seeing things as a system, the system that they are. Yeah,
2: exactly. Exactly.
1: Okay. Our topic is jobs to be done because you are a a great practitioner of this. And I'm wondering if you can start us off with an example before we get into kind of the specifics of the steps one would take. Yeah. Um, to just help us appreciate what jobs to be done can do for us.
2: Yeah, so so I think the one a, 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 si- a simple example is so um, I've done seven startups and and you know I've worked on over thirty five hundred different products. But I think um, one of the things I did in two thousand five is I basically st- uh, um, in the attempt not to travel, I basically uh, 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 partnered with a with a company that uh, was a builder and figured out how to apply all my tools and methods and techniques to the, the building industry. And um, the first thing, uh, you know, when I got there, they basically told me all the features and benefits of the house. They taught me all about kind of how to, you know, and I, I took the role as uh, VP of sales and marketing. And in, in the end, what I realized is that, you know, our features looked like everybody else's features. And they had this underlying premise that, you know, people who bought a new home, a new construction home, not, you know, they never looked at used. And, um, as I went and applied some of these methods, it, it, it was very, very uh, evident that, that, that we could actually understand this business very differently. And so what I did is I went and interviewed. We basically uh, built homes for first-time home buyers, divorced family with kids, and downsizers. Think of like your parents, right? And ultimately, the way to think about it is, what causes your parents to say today's the day that they're going to sell the house that you grew up in and move into one of my condos or into a condo, right? And it's, it's, our, the product is actually irrelevant. So one of the things I learned in Japan was they kept talking to me about what they call uh, technology agnostic requirements, right? And I kept going like, I have no idea what that means. It's like, I want to know what the customer wants irrelevant of how we actually solve it. And so that has always been kind of one of the underlying pinnings of what Jobs is about, which is how do I understand the context that people are in and the outcome that they really want and understand that struggling moment that is causing them to say they want to go from point A to point B,
1: hmm.
2: right? And, and, and ultimately there's what we call the forces of progress that are pushing them and pulling them and anxieties and friction and habit. Um, but there's also a timeline that actually enables people to... Um, kind of like go through these phases of of having a first thought basically uh, uh passively looking for something actively looking deciding etc and so the framework itself helps us try to understand those things and so for example one of the things that I learned by interviewing so first of all I only interview people who have always already moved right or have already tried to make progress in that way okay and so and and an example would be is that that um one of the things that was a very big frictional point is that they would go from like 2,500 to 3,000 square feet home to a 1,654 square foot condo. And so they'd have to get rid of some stuff. And you found that when people would move, they, they that was actually the emotional bank account for them of like they, they didn't know how to actually get rid of things. And so one of the things, one of the features that we ended up adding was... We included moving and two years of storage, and then a place to sort the stuff in the clubhouse. When you, as your the, as your parents are there, at, you could actually sort it out, and they could give you the box. and by and, and by adding that as a as a way to reduce the friction, what we were able to do is actually increase sales 22 percent. Hmm. And so it's these things where what I realized is I wasn't really a builder. I was a mover. My job was to help somebody move from one place to another and to understand what were the things that actually motivated them to get there and what were those frictional points to, to actually uh, get rid of it. And so I ended up having to, for example, have crews that would fix their house to help them sell it so they could buy my house. And so there's all these other things I would do as a builder that no other builder would do because they just thought if they gave $5,000 off or they gave free granite or they gave stainless steel appliances, they could actually make it work. And we we, we literally went from 4% market share to almost 14% market share.
1: Excellent change. And by, <laughs> by understanding what the customer's problems actually were. Um, That's right. And, and I That's relate right. well to this because we're not at that stage of downsizing yet, but, uh, but my one daughter started there. It is. <laughs> my one daughter started college. My son will be in a couple of years and I'm starting to think about it, right? Um, yeah. And part of that uh, emotional attachment is to the memories in the current yes. place and what yes. is that going to be like when we don't have the current place anymore? That's right.
2: That's right. That's right. And And Think of it as is, is. What's the journey they have to go through? But but you have to realize without the struggling. A lot of times people talk about journey mapping and trying to reduce the, the 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 struggle and the and the friction. And my thing is is, but sometimes the struggle and friction actually help create the value of what they're doing. And so part of this is to actually understand, like like what is what what's the progress they're trying to make, and what are ultimately the outcomes they're trying to get to, because there might be 20 different ways to help them get there. And so. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Taguchi would always say to me, that one of the things he would say would be, uh, you know, there is way more that we don't know than what we know. And don't ever forget it. <laughs> right? And so, as much as I might know about moving or building a house, the reality is like, I don't know as much as how it from other people's perspective. So, it taught me always to be able to talk to people and talk to consumers and understand their underlying causal mechanisms.
1: Good. So, um, I, I really appreciate sharing that uh, example
0: interrupting the interview to share something really important. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute, but I want you to know about an extraordinary system called the Rapid Product Mastery, or RPM Experience. In just nine weeks, you can have a higher-performing product team, meeting only 75 minutes a week, with no travel required. One product leader, after trying all the typical training workshops, turned to the RPM Experience to get real change for his team. He said that this is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed it to do. If you have a group of five to 14 product professionals, learn how you too can have a high performing team in just nine weeks, 75 minutes a week without travel. This is the system created by Chad based on his experience working as a product leader, coaching several organizations and deeply studying innovation during his PhD work. Get the guide for yourself at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM.
1: I want to ask you about one other, because uh, this is one that Chris shared uh, from you when he was talking about what this jobs to be done thing is, right? Yep, and I think yep. this one goes back a little bit further. Yep. And I have retold this story many times because I thought it was such a good example. So you, you got to set me straight, which is why I'm asking yep. about it. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: The... the uh, The job that a Snickers candy bar does versus the job that a Milky Way candy bar does.
2: So when you when you when you start to think about products, the fact is is that a Snickers and Milky Way are are made with the same chocolate. One has a little bit lighter uh, center, uh, but but they actually have almost all the same ingredients. One has peanuts, one doesn't. And so you would think that they compete. They they sit on the the candy uh, you know the the aisle in the in the grocery store in the same place or in the in the you know, in the and the pharmacy or wherever you get your candy bars, right? They're, they're, they mm-hmm. sit side by side next to each other. But when you actually talk to people about what causes them to say, you know, why a Snickers and why now, or why a Milky Way and now, you actually find out that they get hired in very different contexts with very different outcomes. And and what's what's interesting is, for example, when you when people eat a Snickers, it's typically um they they missed the last meal or their stomach is growling in some way they have they have s- some work to do they feel like they're running out of energy but they don't want to eat something too big that it's going to spoil their 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 uh, you know the next meal, and at the same time, they don't want it to be a mess. Like they don't want to have to pull it together. So it's 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 about the quickness of almost like mainlining food into their system, so they can get do the work they have to do. Right? It's like fill the gap kind of thing. And and you when when you start to ask people about the last time they had a Snickers, you just saw these patterns of these dominoes that had to come up. And so it's it's almost like fuel. Like and I think it's like you know when you're not you and uh, when you're not you uh, and you're hungry. Snickers satisfies, right? It's that aspect of, like, it doesn't, in the old days, it talked about it was packed with peanuts and all these other features. But the reality is, like, most people eat it because the fact is they know that they're either, their blood sugar's dropping and they've got stuff to do or they need fuel to keep them through. Milky Way, on the other hand, is one of those that typically is eaten always alone. Uh, um, They eat it very slowly. Um, it's the context of typically something just happened um, emotionally. It could have been good or been bad. Sorry, let me just turn off my uh, do not disturb. Um, and then what happens is, is that you start to realize that the other part is this is about actually feeling better. And so you start to realize that it's it's a very much more an emotional job versus a physical job. And, and ultimately, when you, look, when you think about the, the, the experience of eating it, the first bite of a Snickers, right? when you bite it it's it's hard right and it masticates in your mouth uh, uh, like a ball and you swallow it like it's real food and it sits in your stomach and absorbs that acid that actually is causing it to gr- uh, to grumble right and so you you start to realize that that the product attributes actually help deliver on the job because it has more food tendency so when we learn this Uh, I was at the time the product person or helping the product person and one of the things we actually did is we changed the layering we made sure that when you bought when you bought into it you actually had it was a a little bit harder the caramel we changed the melting temperature so it was a little bit higher which made it stickier Um, and so all of a sudden you start to realize like there's all these different things that you have to do to the product to actually do that job versus a milky way the first bite is very soft right and when you chew it it almost is liquid in mm, like two or three bites, and it literally almost sloshes around your mouth and you drink it down. And then you actually enjoy the hedonic of everything that's there because of the context you're in. And so, you know, in, in, in my world, Snickers and Milky Way don't compete at all. But in the, in the what we call the supply side of the world, they, they, they see them as direct competitors, though they're made by the same people. <laughs> yeah, very so different jobs will be done. Very, very different jobs to be done, and, and understanding what are the important attributes about it and what are the important things to create those outcomes that they want.
1: And why I've retold that story, thankfully, uh, Chris helped me get this pretty right. So, from what you just shared, that's good. Uh, but why I've retold, retold it so many times is these two candy bars kind of we think about candy bars in very similar ways, but they yeah. are very different. And that one is you go to one, I've done this before with Snickers to, to fill me up for a period of time, it's quick and easy to do. And the Milky Way is more of an indulgence. It's more yep. of a
2: treat. This is where you have to unpack these words, and so this is where it's not—it's not just a treat. It's about something that, if something bad happened, it's about make me feel better, and if something good happened, it's about extend the, extend the feeling good. And so, mm-hmm. it, the the word indulgence is a is what I what I would call is one of those high. It's almost like a pablin word. It, it, everybody knows what it means, but I don't know what to do with that as a product person. <laughs> Right, and so part of this is about unpacking it down to what are the actions that has to do in order, and how does it do the fact to be? What does indulgence How do I cause indulgence? Is ultimately the, the 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 problem that I see as a as a product developer?
1: Okay, so so let's get into this more then. How do yep. we go about applying jobs be done? You've talked about interviews, having talked to customers. Um, yep. Take us through kind of a framework for this.
2: Yep. So we start with uh, one is framing, framing what we would call as a very fun, fundamental question of what, uh, of, uh, of what you're actually trying to answer. So a lot of times people will build a survey, right? And I, I'll always say I'm never smart enough to know how to build a survey because I don't actually know what people want. And there are a lot of people who can guess, but I, I call jobs hypothesis building research as opposed to hypothesis proving research, right? And so we start with uh, uh, maybe a 15, 20 questions, but we, we boil it down to one core question we're trying to basically understand. And if we understand that question, we can actually then answer all these other questions. And so it's a, an exercise to basically help get us to kind of uh, the, the fundamentals behind it. And so it's like, what causes people to move from their house, from their, the house they've lived in for 20 plus years to a new condo, right? And, and, and so the first thing is, 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 and it could be about a product, it could be about a, a group of consumers, it could be about a struggling moment. Um, so the question can vary around kind of different uh, places, if you will. Then what we do is we go and recruit people who have uh, tried and successfully solved and tried and unsuccessfully solved those, that problem. So we want people who have gone through the experience of trying to do it. If you if you have a product, for example, that's new to the new to the world, we'll we'll tell people to say like, go find people like if if your product comes out, what are people not going to buy, or what are people going to fire because of your product? Like they're not going to use this, or they're not going to use that, and then go interview what causes people to buy that, right? And so then we basically recruit these people, and we do uh, usually a one hour interview. Where we actually use uh, more. In, uh, so there's a book by Chris Voss called "Never Split the Difference," but it's more or less. And uh, very early on in the early '90s, I was trained in interrogation techniques uh, from uh, both uh, uh, intelligence and, and criminal uh, experts, who basically helped me understand how to uh, um, ask questions better, ask better questions that really get at what people mean and is and get down to the actions that actually help them. Do what they do. And so the interviews are about an hour long um, and they, they revolve, most of them are on the phone. They, they can be face to face. And then after each interview, we debrief it and we, 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 we codify that interview in terms of what are the pushes that pushed people to say today's the day they have to do? What are the pulls that actually had to happen? What anxieties did they have and have to overcome? And what habits did they have to give up on or, or what habits did they have to break in order to make that progress? And, and by codifying it through these causal mechanisms or these dominoes, um, we can start to see some patterns. And so out of that, um, we end up doing 10 interviews. And from the 10 to 12 interviews, we start to see patterns of when people are in this context, they want this outcome. And when people are in that context, they want a different outcome. And so we start to see these pathways or doors. Um, and we use... We end up using math, uh, so um, I've uh, done some work with uh, um, Todd Rose, who's uh, done the end of average, and I use I use basically uh, next nearest neighbor analysis to basically understand how many unique stories do we really have that enable us to then understand the the jobs that people are actually hiring your product to do or a product to do, and from that then we decide what we want to do, and so. Um, Intercom is a really good example where they had one product and they basically thought it was about it's a, a basically a platform that helps you communicate with your customers um, and see what they're doing and and understand and um, when we actually they thought it was uh, all the data in one place from cradle to grave was their original kind of positioning but we actually found four different jobs that they did. And, and what they end up doing is breaking them, and in, in, they started them as kind of packages, but they ended up making them as four different products that it enabled them to actually understand how to grow. And they grew about almost uh, uh, you know, 5x in, in 18 months, basically, by just changing from one product to basically seeing the, the, five, the four jobs that they actually did.
1: Excellent. Okay, so you, you unpacked a lot of detail for us there, which was wonderful. I want to go back to a few things, but first, is there a resource that you would point us to to say, okay, this is where you can learn more?
2: Um, yeah, so there's a couple of ways. There's Jobs To Be Done Radio, which uh, the, there the, there's some older interviews there, but there's some stuff uh, that's going on there. Competing Against Luck is a good primer to get you into jobs. It's uh, A lot of it is uh, so, uh, some of my clients and and tatties and... and uh, Dave Duncan's, but it's it gets to kind of building the theory and what it's about, and then I just wrote a book called Demand Side Sales, (laughs) which is which is actually uh, applying the entire method to the sales part of the business. Which um, the main purpose of writing the book uh, around that was the fact is is like how can you go to business school and not have a sales class, (laughs) (laughs) and and realize that that at some point we're always selling. And as a founder, you're selling investors, you're selling. You know, co-founders, you're selling employee, you're like you're trying to actually help people make progress. And so it's using it to that. And that has actually examples of interviews in it as well.
1: Yeah, I, I like these interesting connections that you've made uh, to some areas that we might not think of initially. So like Chris yeah. Voss, I believe he, he was the FBI oh, negotiator yes. that is now, you know, well known for, yes. for teaching people negotiation. And so you refer to him in terms of trying to identify why people do what they do. Yes. Unpack that a little bit more for us. How, how do you accomplish that in those interviews?
2: So I have, a, I have another book I'm just finishing. It'll be out in September. It's called Learning to Build. And, and one of the things I talk about is empathetic perspective. And it's being able to see the world from their side and realize that, for example, most people, when they start this process, they have no idea of a solution. They only have problem language. And so you start to realize that they can only talk about the, the problems they have without actually knowing what the solution is. So, so for example, um, you know, I've done some work where people will buy leadership training, right? But leadership is not a problem. It's a solution. What are the symptoms that people have when they have poor leadership? And what is the things they talk about? Well, we have high turnover rates. We have low morale. We have like all these. That's what they're actually, that's the problem they solve. Leadership is the answer, not the solution, not the problem. And so part of this is actually understanding and empathizing with them to, to the language that they really use. We keep trying to make everybody learn our language. Like I think of Starbucks as the anomaly where... Like everybody's learned how to order a Starbucks. If you're a Starbucks fan, you know exactly how to order. But if you're not, you have no idea how to order. The anxiety going into a Starbucks for me, because I'm not a big proponent. Like I don't go there often. I'm like, yeah, I just need a medium coffee. Like like you know, like at some point, I think that's a vent. Uh, yeah, I don't know tall. I, I don't know. Anyway, right. but it's that that the, the aspect here is being sure you understand it from their side. The other part is that people. The, the interesting part is is that people lie to themselves about why they did something. So if you talk to somebody about like why they bought a car, right, and they say, "Oh, I bought a, it. It's a great deal, and it gets awesome gas mileage," and and so that's what everybody sees is like, "Oh, that's what we have to do." But if you actually play out the story, it's like, no, the old car was it had a had just had a big repair. They warned me of something else. I heard a sound in it. The fact is, is like, and oh, by the way, I, I didn't want to replace that car. I wanted something more reliable. And what, it, like, and you start to realize that the that thread is way more complicated than just gas mileage in a deal. Mm-hmm. And so, part of it is being able to unpack past the. Uh, I always call it the cake layer. The, there's this cake layer of like, oh, I wanted it to be easier. I wanted it to be faster. But it's like, what does that mean, and what outcomes do you get by having it be that way? And so it's really spending the time to unpack down to the actions or the outcomes or the context that caused people to do things.
1: I like that cake, Larry. I think, think of the frosting around the cake, right? Which is the right. gooey, yummy part for some of us, at least to, to get to, but doesn't really do anything for us.
2: For marketers, they love that. They, they, like, I think marketers' objective is to give the most ambiguous word that everybody can relate to that's close enough. But like when you say, "Boy, it's fun." As an engineer, I got to cause fun. Like, holy cra- Like, causing fun is actually really hard to do. Mm-hmm. And there's probably 23 ways to do it. And I I don't have time or money to do all 23. So which ones do I pick? And how do I how do I actually create fun? And you start to realize like, that's where we have to actually unpack and make sure we know what we mean by that. And what does it mean to be fun? And when is it not fun?
1: Give us some bounds around the number of interviews to do the discussions because you, you talked yeah. about maybe I heard twelve, and then when you're talking about Todd Rose and of average that you may come up with within some set of customers unique problems they have that are a little bit different than each other.
2: For me, I, I I've always been kind of uh, in the in the in the MVP kind of uh, lean uh, mindset because of Deming, and and the whole aspect there is. Um, I would rather do like f- three or four iterations of ten than do forty or fifty interviews, because mm-hmm. at some point you start to hear the patterns and the and the the causality is very very similar. And so to me, it's it's being able to actually. I, I usually only do rounds of ten to twelve. Um, I'll say in the early days I had people convince me that I needed to do fifty, and you know they they begged me to stop at twenty two, <laughs> so. I think the reality is is that there's ways in which you can do the qualitative piece to get the right variables or the right dominoes, and then there's a quantitative piece to actually size and see the differences between it in industry, like or in in ge- geography, for example. And so, like we did some work for a consumer electronics company where we did uh, we 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 found, we did the work actually in the UK. We found the jobs in the UK. Um, and then we sized them in the UK, and then we went to France, we went to Russia, we went to Japan, and the jobs weren't actually different. They were The proportion size were different in, diff- in the different cultures, but what you found was the, the language that they use um, might have been slightly different, but the, but the vector of the context and outcome were, were actually universal across. And so it's finding those really fundamental things up front that I think help you in a development project immensely to know what the trade-offs are that consumers make and how to actually know what to focus on and what not to focus on.
1: Good. So we're not talking about large numbers of interviews that have to be conducted. And this has been my experience too, that even in five or six, I often find really useful insights that we probably weren't thinking about before. Um, And then you're just kind of looking to see if those patterns bear out when you do a few more.
2: That's right. And, and a lot of times what we'll do is we'll actually um, figure out ways to go back and look at other data. Again, most big data or surveys are, are, are averaged. And so they say on average this and the. And what I like to do is go back and say, no, I want to cluster the data. I want to I wanna take those thousand respondents and say like, all right, let me cluster and say who did similar answers to somebody else and say, all right, now let me tell about this subgroup, and you start to realize by aggregating the data as opposed to kind of analyzing the data, you you actually get really different answers. And so the so Todd always talks about that we we typically aggregate and then analyze, but in 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 you know in jobs and in and and when you start to talk about the sites of the individual, you you actually analyze and then you aggregate, and that's a really big distinction to me of how I do so or how we do some of the analysis. I have a software package I'm working with uh, on, with Ryan Singer. Uh, to basically uh, kind of facilitate the process of uh, uh, doing the interviews, but, but codifying them and then doing the analysis and coming back with those uh, very tangible jobs that people want to get done.
1: Yeah, which is a skill and also a tedious activity, right, to, to do yes, that coding yes. and, and theme making out of qualitative data. And I've done that yep. more than times than I like to count. Yeah. And so th- this could be a very useful tool. Uh, any idea when we might look forward to that?
2: Um, so I have a, I have some alpha people. I have about 20 alpha people now. We'll have a, a beta in the summer. It should be launched in the fall.
1: Okay. And I suspect one question listeners have in their minds is, well, how do I actually conduct an interview? Yeah. And we're not going to have time to go into details of this, but uh, again, where, where could you point us for more help?
2: So we have uh, I started a YouTube channel, um, and then I've been doing podcasts where I'm actually interviewing people and demonstrating it uh, on it. So I have probably five of those. And so if you look up Bob Mesta, M-O-E-S-T-A, uh, I have a YouTube channel for that. Um, in the Jobs to Be Done radio, we have some examples of that as well. So we have uh, probably two or three interviews there. Um, there are interviews in the book uh, of de- demand-side sales um, from that perspective. And then, um, you know, um, there are there are lots of people who are kind of uh, have... Different podcasts around it. So my thing is, is you can hear them, um, and then how to how to add, how to debrief them is also part of the the, the YouTube channel piece that I have. I did an interview on Peloton right now, and I'm in the midst of lining up like four or five more.
1: That sounds wonderful, fun. If you need someone else to talk to about a Peloton, let me know.
2: Yeah, this is the pandemic. This is the pandemic that uh, has done is allowed us to kind of like how do we actually kind of consolidate and. Like, I always think that when when things like this kind of happen, it's like, I, I always have to be building or creating something. I can't be just sitting around waiting for something. So that's all the things I've been kind of working on.
1: Okay, lots of depth there. I hope listeners uh, unpack this a little bit for themselves. We'll provide the detailed show notes for this as well to pull yeah. some insights out. Um, as listeners know, I love innovation quotes. Uh, do you have an innovation quote for us? And what, what does that quote mean to you?
2: yeah so I always say uh, context creates value and contrast creates meaning. Hmm. And that um, to me that that's like uh, that, that's what I see on my, my headstone, right? It's one of those things where um, the, the a snickers in the wrong context is basically just it, it actually doesn't satisfy. And so realizing that your product has to actually f- go find the right context for it to actually maximize its value. And so part of this is realizing that, understand the contextual variables that wrap around your product or, or around your customer that actually makes it as valuable or more valuable than if it's not there, right? And then the contrast to create meaning is, is it's one of those things that's uh, I talk about in the sales book, but it's like people actually need contrast to actually understand how to decide. And that, that at some point, I need I need to vary things. Or so, for example, one suggestion is every time we're selling, I want to actually show people three different things. Because Dan Aurelius says this best in Predictably Irrational. But it's like at some point, they don't actually choose uh, the one. They eliminate to the one. So what happens is if you give them three choices, the first thing they do is they take the one that they don't want and they say, nope, that's out. And they're left with two. And most of the time, you think, well, they'll compare the two to each other. But the human behavior actually does is they compare each one to the one that's out. And they actually talk about the one that's closest to the one that's out. So they eliminate to the one they want. So this is where people will say, I don't know which one. But but if you ask them, tell me which one it's not, they can almost decide instantly.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> so, a really good insight.
2: That's so, so to me, it's that contrast to create meaning is like, in a lot of cases, people will say words like, I want it to be easy. And I'll say, well, OK, so tell me what's hard. about it. Like, And they'll say, easy, like, just it's got to be easier. And I'll say, well, then tell me what's hard about it. And they'll say, bam, bam, bam. They can give me almost 100 things around what's bad. About, but most people don't think about trying to define the opposite or the contrast to it. And contrast usually gives us way more meaning.
1: That's a good way to think about that, right? That the instead of asking people to make a choice, in that sense, you're asking people to um, say what they don't want, and that might be easier to get their hands around.
2: Or like somebody say, God, I was just so excited for the for the peloton to come. I'm like, okay, excited like your birthday, excited like Christmas, excited like you know you're getting married. And they're like, oh yeah, no, not like Christmas. It's like getting married. Like this was like I was so you know, and you start to and and that contrast allows them to have a whole new set of language to talk about something. Cause you build a metaphor space for it now.
1: Right. Yep. Are you still doing those interviews about Peloton?
2: Uh, I am, I am. I have to tell you that what I did last, I did one last week. It was so funny. Uh, the, the, this, this, uh, this woman who ended up purchasing it was ultimately she bought it because she needed her time. And I kept going, like, she kept talking about like, you know, I don't really work out. I really don't want to work out. You know, I have some friends who are on it and we we went around it. And then again, about 35 minutes into the interview, it's all of a sudden, it's like, well, you know, I just need some me time. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, when I'm on the Peloton, I literally, nobody's allowed to bother me. Like, Like in the pandemic, I'm literally locked in the house with my husband and my kids and I can't go anywhere. And to be honest, the closest it comes is I realized one night I was having a glass of scotch at you know, 1030 at night by myself and going like, I can't do this the rest of my life or I'm going to be in trouble. <laughs> and she, she literally said that that's how I, how I got to a Peloton. And so Peloton th- keeps thinking everybody's buying it because it's about, you know, uh, the workout and it's about being together. And it's about, and she's literally like, no, this is literally the way I can get like, no people know not to buy. It. I can put my headphones on. I can literally get in the zone and I have literally this two by four place in my house where it's now me <laughs> like, wow. Yep.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of insights just in the usernames that people pick for uh, for exactly. their Peloton accounts. Um, and exactly. as I've been riding, I come up, for some reason I keep coming across uh, uh ride to Margaritas. I think is one. I, yeah, I, I yeah, see yeah, for yeah. yeah.
2: Exactly yeah. right. Exactly right. Yeah, that's that's good insights. Yeah, my my favorite is I, I, a long time ago we did some work for uh, like a sports performance company, and they they. We had us go uh, talk to and meet with people who were like extreme athletes, right? And we we watched, we hung out with them for two days. We saw everything they did. And, you know, as I was walking out the door, I I, I, I realized I had not seen the freezer. And I go like, I- I'm sorry, is can I just take one peek in the freezer? Because like, we've looked in the fridge. We watched you make all these things, but I just, I didn't have, to... and you just saw the person go like, oh. I'm like. Wait, what's going on with that? And then, like nothing, we go to the freezer and there's like five gallons of ice cream in there. And I'm like, what is this? And she says, well, this is the real reason why I work out so much. <laughs> I love ice cream and I, I know that that for me to actually eat it, I have to actually do all this other stuff. I'm like, holy moly, like it never came up in any of the conversations. And so it's like, it, it just, it highlighted this whole notion of like, you have to dig deep and you have to, you have to ask the question that's in your gut.
1: Lots of great insights, Bob. I'm going to put links to the resources that you shared with us along the way. Where is the like the best one place for people to remember?
2: Would it be your YouTube channel? Uh, YouTube channel, um, uh, LinkedIn, I'm doing a lot, I'm, I have some people helping me write uh, posts. Like the, I think the cool thing is, is in the last 12 months, I have figured out how to get uh, a team together to help me write books. And so mm-hmm. I've been writing books and blog posts and the latest stuff is all uh, LinkedIn is the best place. And it's Bob, M-O-E-S-T-A, Bob Besta.
1: I will make sure there's a link to Bob Estes, LinkedIn profile in the show notes as well. Bob, thank you so much for spending time with us.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks again for listening. This is where product leaders and managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. So you'll create products that customers love. Find all the written details of everything we talked about with Bob and that one page action guide to help you put into action some key insights right now at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 335. Keep innovating.
0: Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.